Well, thanks, guys. Thanks. Man, it's so good to hear your voices uh, singing uh, to God. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be starting a new series um, titled Living Scent. And we're really going to walk through some sections of Scripture kind of from the beginning uh, towards the very end of Scripture over the next about 10 weeks um, looking at um, Living Scent and Today, I want us to look first, starting in Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis 3 um, is where I want us to, to begin. So we're not starting all the way at the beginning uh, of creation, but starting where really this idea of living scent uh, comes, becomes very clear and necessary uh, for us in this story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, Genesis 3, I want to pray, uh, and then we're going to just read scripture and look at it uh, together. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. Thank you for um, your goodness. Uh, you are so good to us. We're so undeserving of your love. There's so so many times um, each day, each each moment. It seems like sometimes uh, in a day where we we very much fall short, where we um, put ourselves first in pride or selfishness and arrogance. And so, Father, help us. Help us to come humbly to your word today. We, <clears throat> we do need your help. We need um, a fresh um, perspective, a fresh understanding, uh, or more importantly, a fresh application of your word today. Help us to apply your word, not just listen to another message and hear another um, story of scripture or another truth of scripture. God, may it lead us to greater worship and a desire to resist temptation and run from evil. And so just help us, Father, we ask, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. So really, as a people redeemed by Christ, we're sent out to join God's mission of redemption through Christ. Like, this is our mission. Um, we're, we're enabled, we're equipped through the Spirit. So as a follower of Jesus, we're enabled, we're equipped. Everything that we need in Christ. Christ has completed the work of salvation for us. And so the Bible tells us the just will live by faith. And so we do. We live as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, we live by faith and we walk by faith. But as a people who have been redeemed by Christ, we also join him in his mission. We join him in this mission of redemption that happens in Christ. And so God has given us this mission. And really what I want us to do is we're going to start at the beginning uh, in Genesis chapter 3, where we see this mission all begins. Um, And ultimately this this, uh, beginning happened before that. I mean, actually, when we really think of the story of the gospel and the story of scripture, and ultimately this whole redemption story, it all started before time even began. Uh, the story of the gospel, that God was going to come and redeem man. I mean, that's what's so incredible, isn't it? That Christ would be a, like the part of the Trinity, creator God, creates mankind, creates everything, makes it perfectly good. And yet he does all that knowing full well that man will reject him. They will not want him, that the Israelites will say, we don't want God to be. I mean, can you think that? Think about that in scripture, that the Israelites said, "Mm, we don't want you to be. We want a man. Give us a man. Give us Saul eventually is who they they get as a king. And they get exactly what they asked for. They get a flawed king. They had their perfect, a perfect God and perfect ruler ruling over them. And they asked for um, a king instead. And we see that throughout scripture. We see the effects of what we're going to look at today, the fall 
and sin. And so Adam and Eve, they're enjoying, and to, to set the story up, as most of you probably know, because most people, again, I say this often, is most people have read Genesis. The struggle is beyond Genesis. You start January, you read most of Genesis, and then all of a sudden the Bible reading plan just fades away. Um, and so most people know the stories of Genesis pretty well, at least the first about 12 chapters. First week of, their, of January, they got it. And then after that, they struggle a little bit. But but Adam and Eve, to set this up, as you know, probably pretty well, is they're enjoying perfect relationship with God. I mean, can you imagine? It's unhindered. Like, love comes natural. It's not a sacrifice. Like, oh, I'm like, like and it can be painful. Like, it's perfect relationship with God. God is in harmony, and they are in harmony with God. They're working together. They're walking together in the garden the Bible tells us that he created everything, and what did God say? He said it was what? He said it was good, right? He, he declares all of his creation good, and then now, just a few chapters later, uh, we see just as, I mean, like, think about it. We have a huge Bible, at least I do, this big old Bible here, this big Bible, and sinlessness lasted <laughs> two chapters of this Bible that I have in front of me. Like, Two chapters. Obviously, there's, there's, there's a distance there because we know the fall. For instance, Satan, this isn't the first time Satan sins either. We know from later in, in the Old Testament that Satan had, uh, in his own pride, and his own wanting to be, as this archangel wanted to be higher than God, uh, sins. And God curses Satan and casts him out, and a third of the angels with him. So obviously, that happens between the goodness of creation and it being perfect and to our point. So I don't know how long uh, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. There's some time there, obviously. But we come to this. They're in perfect relationship with God. Their oneness reflects the oneness of the Trinity and gives us a foretaste of our intimacy and union with Christ as His bride. And to this point, Adam and Eve have only listened to God. There's no shame. The man and his wife were both naked, and it tells us in, in chapter 2 that they were not ashamed. Um, not only were they physically naked, but also in a spiritual way, they were completely bare before God and there was nothing that was needing to be hidden. There was no like shame. There was no go hide in a corner. There was nothing there. They were in perfect relationship with God. And really, ultimately, I think I like this quote from C.S. Lewis elaborating on this idea of them being physically naked, but in a spiritual way, they were completely bare. C.S. Lewis elaborate, <clears throat> elaborated on this and said, they were also doing this without painful effort. In a sense, it was effortless. I mean, they're walking with God. It wasn't painful. It wasn't like, it's, it wasn't hard. I mean, all of us, I think, can relate to following Jesus is hard. I mean, we see that in Scripture, in the, in the Gospels. I mean, Peter and Peter, James, John, all of them, they're trying to follow Jesus and they kept messing up. They kept messing up. I mean, Jesus was right there in front of them, right? I mean, like, we know that this is painful and it's hard to follow Jesus, but yet here before uh, the fall, they're in perfect relationship, and it's not even hard. It's actually effortless. So picking up the story, look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning, uh, was, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then it tells us the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, think about this, just a couple comments, one, right? Like Eve said, notice what Eve said. Did you, did you catch, you might not have caught that. Notice what Eve says as, so the serpent here is very cunning. We know this. Again, so this is a manifestation. So Satan coming in the form of a serpent comes and taking the form of the serpent of, a, of, an, of, of an animal comes up to and says this. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So obviously the first thing here is Satan's temptation is, to say, did God really say such and such? Did God really say? And so, and notice what she, her response is though. The woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but notice that what she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the, gar- of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. You know, I want you to notice something there. First of all, did you notice what God did not say? And, and, and if you've read your Bible a little bit and you know in chapter 2, what God said was, He did say that. He said, you, know, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But you know what He didn't say? He didn't. God didn't say, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Go up and touch it and you'll die. No, that's what she added to the story from what we know of Scripture. That she added, oh, don't touch that you can't. Have you ever done that before? Like, at least as a kid, did you ever do that where it's like, Man, my dad is like, for instance, like dad says, comes up and says something, makes a decision for the for the kids and says, you know, I, you can't go to this party this time, uh, but maybe there's the next time or maybe we'll look and we'll look ahead and maybe make a decision. And what is it the, the, the child does, the child or the teenager does? They walk away mad. They go to they go to mom and they're like, dad's so unreasonable. He said I can never go to my friend's house. And he's like, well, no, he never said he, dad didn't say never. He said not this time. He didn't say, and so you see how we do that? You can do that with a boss, right? You go into a meeting and you've messed something up. The, the, uh, your supervisor tells you like, hey, listen, we need to correct some of these things and you need to fix some of these things by our next meeting. And you walk out of that meeting frustrated by your boss and then you start telling your coworkers, man, he said, if I mess up again, I'm fired, <laughs> right? Like, no, that's, that's, that's how we treat things, right? When we think something is unreasonable, when we think someone is unjust, what do we do? We make it worse. We make it worse what they're saying to minimize the kind of the culpability on us. Like we don't want, we don't want to be culpable, so we're going to make it worse. And even here, Eve is taking something and saying, and, and, and already she's taken the bait. Like, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he said, well, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Notice this, but the serpent said to the woman, question, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here, Satan again tries to, uh, to get her to sin. She's trying to get her to question who God is. She, Satan is going right after the character of God. But notice also, this is the first time, and listen, this is the challenge for us when you're thinking about starting a church and as you're trying to be foundational on doctrines, on the, on the scriptures and certain doctrines. This is the first doctrine that we find where the question comes up of, I mean, of judgment and questioning God's judgment. 
did, did God really say this, for instance, you shall not eat it in, in the garden, and then this, but the servant said, you will not surely die? Isn't that the temptation that most people in our culture today struggle with? They struggle with the idea that God isn't good or that there's a judgment. I'll let her go. It's okay. Struggling. And so what, what, what does our culture do, right? Our culture, our culture says, there's no hell. There's no, I mean, like, really, would a real, a really, would a good God a really good God, a loving God, actually have a place of eternal punishment for all of eternity in a place called hell. I mean, this is described as, as people of weeping with gnashing of teeth. A place of total darkness, a total absence of the goodness of God, the grace of God. I mean, listen, every single person, whether you're a believer or non-believer, can go and experience this grace of God. You can go outside and you can... Take a deep breath and, and, and then, for me, start crying because it's the fall season and there's rag, ragweed, so I already get the effects of sin even when I go outside but, but, uh, and start sneezing. But we all can go and we can enjoy together a, a beautiful sunrise, whether you're a believer or non-believer. We could hang out with friends in a neighborhood who are, who are people who are uh, opposed to God and actually maybe an atheist or someone else who worships another God. We can go outside and enjoy creation together. Like, think of this. Hell is described as a place that is absent from any grace, any goodness from God. When you start thinking about that, the absence of God in your life is there's nothing good, like nothing. Like there's no enjoyment. And people describe it, right, in, in culture and in, their, in cartoons and in, in television shows and in culture and in just in general, people think of like, oh, like, like bad people go there and it kind of like you're, it's like the bad place and they get to run around and, and party or they get to walk around in, and, and like literally it's, it's the way descri- described in scripture is almost like you're isolated completely from people. And here the first doctrine that's being questioned by Satan is this doctrine. The doctrine of death, the, do- the doctrine of destruction of, because what we're going to see is what happens, right? Because look on, look on, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that you eat of it. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Actually, God is, is holding you back. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to experience what he experiences. And, and so he's trying to hold you back. He's being unreasonable. Exactly what we do sometimes with people, whether it's a coworker or a boss or supervisor or something, we, we start to think of them as unreasonable. Like that's just not fair. And so here Satan is, is weaving in and he's trying to uh, distract and pull um, Eve into this web of deceit. I mean, because again, we go back. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, of course. And it's even given us this picture too, though, of Satan of being cra- crafty. He's the deceiver. He's a liar. He's deceptive. He's not. He's very cunning. Um, I was just watching the other day. I was showing somebody, I think my parents and some other people, like this uh, rattlesnake and a, um, a mountain lion or a, or a bobcat. Uh, like, and this bobcat, like, trying to, like, 
trying to catch this rattlesnake in the middle of the road and this bobcat is slapping it on the head and this and then I mean like and then he picks up this serpent but that ser- but that snake looks like it goes to still wrap itself and bite it and that bobcat jumps so fast i mean snakes are very cunning and most people do not like snakes i don't I mean if you're one of those people it's i mean you know it's okay i guess but like it's like why what's the point what's the point of playing with the snake exactly there you go levi loves snakes awesome thanks um but, but that verse here where, where, again, going back to verse 1 even, did God actually say, you know, here's the temptation. And this is really the nature of sin. Where sin comes from is an unbelief in God. It's unbelief. And that's the temptation. Did God really say, he's, the temptation is to not trust. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust in God's word? Is, is, he, is he real? Is, is what his word says, is it true? And so the temptation is unbelief. I mean, think about how the, the temptations you face daily. How many of them question God? For instance, the couple in a relationship. I know God said to wait for sexual intimacy until marriage. But did God really, can, did God, God really mean that two people who love each other can't go ahead and commit sexually to one another? Or when faced with a deep, dark trial where everything in your life seems to be crumbling, what is the temptation? It is to not believe that God has your best interest in mind. We question His goodness. The temptation is to question who God is and specifically to tempt you to question His goodness, to not believe what He's saying is true. It's to question Him. And that's exactly what happens. And Satan also tries to get you, uh, and, and here specifically to get her to believe that there is no consequence. Again, the doctrine that we just talked about. Um, and here's the question I think I want to ask you, though, is this. is like, where are you questioning what God has said in His Word? Like, in what aspect of your life? Maybe there's, there's some aspect of your life. Maybe it is going through a hard time, going through a low, difficult season. You question, does God really care? Does God actually listen to my prayers? I've been praying this prayer for the past month or two or years, and God won't answer my prayer. And so maybe there's that question of saying, well, is God really have my best interest in mind? Is He really good? Tim Keller says it like this. He said, the human condition is we look at everything out there. Every item in creation, we look at all these items in creation and we ask, will this give me the wisdom I'm looking for? Will this give me the pleasure I'm looking for? Because let me, let me tell you, here's what that implies. Here's what that implies. What he is saying is that everyone is searching for that thing that will make them feel fulfilled or satisfied or worthwhile or accomplished. And ultimately, we do this, right? We look for what will make our life count. We're like, we look, and so we pursue those things to make us have a sense of worth or acceptance um, that we're doing the right thing. And so we're looking for, what we're doing ultimately is we're looking for the ultimate thing. And we're in this search for it, and we're saying, okay, God, I, I, need, I need this. Or maybe you're saying, without God, like, I'm just going after something. And so what happens? How is this played out? Well, for one, we can become spouse-focused hoping that our spouse will give us that sense of purpose we are looking for. So you get into a relationship, and then you're in a relationship, and then all of a sudden you expect from that person things that only God are meant to be fulfilled in. And so you, you expect that person to fill a hole that's inside of your heart that you think that that will be filled with in a relationship. But ultimately, God is the one who is the in that, that spot. It's a God-sized hole. I, I use that quote probably more than any other quote is from Pascal. It's like, we have this God-sized void 
in each of us. And we're filling that God-sized void with things that are only meant to be filled by Him. And so maybe it's a spouse or maybe it's children. You know, you find your sense of worth and who you are, you know, like do my, and, and you find this when you see a, a, a parent who's just devastated, right? Because they, they so want the love of their children because they don't feel the love and the acceptance of the father. And maybe they don't not find it. And then all of a sudden that season of trying to find it in a relationship in their husband or their spouse, that starts to fade. And you're like, I'm not getting that fulfillment from my husband. And so then what happens? Or my, or my wife. And so what happens? Then you have, you're like, well, maybe let's add kids to the equation. That'll fix our marital problems, right? No, it's not. It's only going expo- to exponentially bring them up. And so what happens, right? Then all of a sudden you have a child and then you're not getting the acceptance there. And so now you're going to try to find it in this child or in these little children. And they're supposed to, like what weight you put on them as parents to, put, to, to fulfill a need in you. So we, we do this. We try to find this. We're saying, God, you're not good enough. So I'm going to go find something else that's going to be good, that you think is good. So we do it with the spouse, we do it with children. We do it with work. We find our sense of satisfaction in our accomplishments, the things that we do. So you'll find people who are workaholics. They work really hard. And like, obviously, God's given us work. We know that work isn't a sinful thing or a thing, or an effect of the fall because we see them working in the garden even before the fall of man. I mean, God gave us the gift of work. But what happens, right? The effects of the fall, sin, is that we find our uh, purpose, our satisfaction, our we, our sense of goodness in our work. Or maybe it's pleasure. You're after pleasure and wanting to find more money and things. And you hope that those things uh, will satisfy and that will, they will bring you a sense of, ple- like of, of worth. I have collected my things. I'm already hearing that Jeff Bezos is trying to, trying to figure out how to extend his life. You know, he has more stuff than any of us could imagine. He has everything. He could have anything he wants. But it's not enough. And it's never enough. And, but yet, here's what happens. We question the goodness of God, and here's what the result of that is, is we go after things trying to experience goodness in another way. And this is not um, the way that it's meant. August, Augustine rightly states, our hearts are restless until they find re- their rest in thee. So look at the effects here. So that's the verse, verses 1 through 7. Look at verse 8. It says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord. So They've already sinned, and immediately what happens? They want to hide. They realize they're naked. I mean, immediately they realize they're naked. That's so interesting. They immediately realize that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Think about that. The goodness of God. He loves you. He lavishes himself on you. He gives you this creation. He says, I want you to have dominion over this. I'm giving it to you to work the ground, to name the animals, to enjoy my creation, walk with me. And then what happens? Now that they're, because of sin, they want to hide from God. They want to actually, they want to distance themselves from God. And so sure enough, they do that. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse nine. It's actually a great verse when you really think about it. But the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, let that, that, just that phrase right there sink in for a second. God says, he, he, you have sinned, and he calls out. He's already right here, we see him pursuing. He's, he's pursuing man. Even in their sin, he's, he, they have sinned, and he's pursuing them. He's not saying, well, they've, they've done it. I'm going to leave earth, 
and let them see the effects of what they've done. He calls out to the man and he says to him, look, look, Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He's like, I was terrified. I would be too. He said this in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said to the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Let me just pause there for a second. Notice going back a little bit. So the, the serpent is tempting Eve, right? So Eve and the serpent are having this conversation. The temptation's coming. And so notice in verse 6, go back to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And notice, and she also gave some to her husband. That line right there, who was with her. Isn't that that interesting? Adam is right there. He's right there. He's right there. Eve is being tempted by Satan and he does nothing except stand there passively. He stands there passively. He watches her. And then probably what happened, right, is like he's going like, hmm, I wonder if she's going to die as soon as she eats this fruit. (laughs) And and so she eats the fruit and doesn't die. And he's like, well, sweet, I'll take that too then. I mean, isn't that crazy? The leadership that God has given him and he abdicates it. He says, no, I'll just watch how this plays out. He stands by. And that's why when Paul describing this, he describes it as Eve was deceived Adam was not deceived. He stood there and he ate anyways in complete rebellion to what God had said. And so when the serpent, and so then when the Lord said to the, or or sorry, going back to the man who told you, verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. So here he stands, he watches, nothing happens. All of a sudden he eats too. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I'm naked. Let me go hide. And they go and hide. And then when God approaches him, he calls out, And he looks at Adam and he says to Adam, like, hey, what's going on here? The woman whom you, and then here's what he says. Like, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Blame. You know what we do in a lot of relationships? We blame, we pass blame. It's what we do in life. We pass blame. Like, it wasn't my fault. I was was tricked or I was deceived or... Like, I didn't know any better. I mean, I, I tried that one a bunch as a kid. I didn't know. <laughs> like, you, my parents knew I knew. Um, I wasn't deceiving anyone. Um, and so he says, and then here's the woman, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then notice what happens here. You're going to see the, the curse in verse 14. So we see the curse. It starts with the animal. Starts with the animal, then it's going to turn to, to Satan. Notice this. He goes, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. So maybe uh, the snake had legs at some point or something. I don't know. But now he's cursed to the ground, or maybe it walked on its tail like it does in Robin Hood or something, whatever that, whatever that one was. I can't remember the name of it. Was Robin Hood? Man, nice. Um, you know, so... But here he's cursed to the ground, to his belly. So he looks to God, looks to the serpent, to the, the actual animal, curses him to the ground. On dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Again, the picture of like his head walking, you know, or whatever that is. 
slithering through uh, the dirt. And then now he says, verse 15, he says, now talking specifically, verse 15, now talking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. Now notice this, this is plural, offspring. So, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then now it goes singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here, as he goes to the curse of Satan, and he looks to Satan, so he's, he's cursed this animal, this, this serpent, snakes, and now he talks directly to Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't know if any of anybody, any people been bitten by a snake before? Uh, man, see, we're all terrified. Oh, you have? Nice. Were you playing with the snake? <laughs> gotcha. Of all the people in this room, you were the only one I was really thinking that might have like actually like handled a snake before. But yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I'm terrified of them. So yeah, please don't. Please don't. Please, please, please don't do any practical jokes about snakes. Okay. I can't stand snakes. But. Here he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. So if you, I mean, most snake bites are going to happen on the leg, right? They're going to happen on the lower parts of your body unless you're reaching down or something and you surprise that snake and it bites you in the hand. So the idea, though, specifically, though, so using that play of words, of course, but we know from more fulfillment of Scripture, even uh, Paul referring to this as well, uh, but more specifically, even with this, this is really called the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, this verse right here is the first gospel that we see in Scripture. God now, earlier, He's calling out to Adam, and then now specifically in His curse of Satan, makes a promise statement as well. He says, I'm going to put in between, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be this constant battle between the daughters and sons of Eve, human beings, and Satan, and his legion of demons. There's going to be a constant spiritual battle going on over our hearts as mankind. I'm going to put enmity between you two. But then he goes singular and he says, he shall bruise, again, pointing to the gospel, pointing to Christ and how you're going to, you're going to through his suffering, through Christ's suffering, you're going to bring a, a blow to him. And here he's, he's describing it as a, um, bruising his heel. But in that, he'll be crushing or bruising his head. Again, we know from a snake, that's where you go for. You go for the head. If you go for the tail, good luck. It's going to bite you in the hand, probably. Um, and so, but it's this picture of a, a, a blow to the head of in Christ when he comes and he conquers death. That just, that, that's where Paul describes and he says, death, where's your sting? Hell has been defeated. The grave, I mean, listen, listen, the grave couldn't hold him any longer. And so when he comes out of the grave, when he, when he resurrects out of uh, the grave. He is conquered. He brings a death blow to Satan. But here's the part that I want to get at is this, because what happens here is eventually, as you know, the, the, the two of them are sent out of the garden. They're kicked out of the garden and it's guarded and all this stuff. And they're, and they're now going to struggle. We see that in the rest of the passage. They struggle they're going to struggle with uh, childbirth. They're going to, they're going to not they. <laughs> uh, she is going to struggle with childbirth. And they will struggle together in raising children. It's going to be difficult. They're going to have a hard time with their own offspring. Uh, we're going to see that immediately. You see the effects of sin on their own children. But we see these effects. But what happens is 
this enmity between your offspring. Guess what? As you know what you're described as, as a follower of Christ, you're a child of God. You're a son or daughter. You join in Christ as, as co-heirs with him. And so here, God has given us this gift as followers of Jesus. When we're joined in with Christ, he's given us this call and he's saying, I want you to live sent in the community. I'm going to put you out. I'm going to send you. We see this in Matthew 28. We see it in Acts 1. Uh, and, and, and we see this call of people to join in his mission of defeating Satan. Think about it. The darkness of the communities that we live in, the sin, the idolatry, Uh, The people who are far from God, the effects of sin are all around us and the evil one has distracted and and has led them astray. And God has given you this gospel, this light, if you're a follower of him, and you're to join him in helping dispel that darkness we talked about on Thursday. Dispelling the darkness with the light of Christ that God has given us that gift to go, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a mission. I'm going to let you be a part of that mission. And that mission comes because of the effects of sin. But ultimately it comes because of the promise of verse 15, that Christ was going to come, one who was going to be an offspring of Eve. A man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was going to come and he was going to deal a death blow to Satan and to evil once and for all. And he allows his followers of him to also join in that mission of, of spreading the gospel. So here's the challenge, I think, for each of us, right? For one, it's like, do I believe in this gospel? Do I believe that God is um, doing a work in in lives of people, that he is drawing people to himself, that he is um, in the work of saving people's lives? But the other is this, is what areas of your life are you questioning his goodness? What area of your life are you saying, like, God, you're, you're not... Like you might think and you, might would, you would never maybe say it out loud. You're like, okay, I know God's good and I love God. But what are you with your actions, with your attitudes, the way you're living, the, 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 the lifestyle that you're living, the motivations for your life, the, the goals, the things that you're pursuing? Are those things reflective of the goodness of God or are you trying to find goodness elsewhere? And here's the other thing is this, where can, how can you join in that mission of living sent, living as a people sent to declare his goodness to the world. God, that's what's so unique, is God says, I want to use people, broken vessels, right? Like these broken people, just a vessel. But this vessel in the master carpenter's hand is the perfect person, or the perfect one, God, to make something out of you. He uses unlikely, just very ordinary people. But listen, what does it take? It takes being aware of the needs, what we're saying and what we're going to continue to say, being aware of the needs around you, paying attention, looking for those opportunities, showing Christ through your actions and your attitude and the way you interact and your character, pointing people to Christ by sharing the hope of Christ when you hear a situation and by you serving people, as we were saying, with bless. You see, Jesus, sadly, in this story, whereas... Adam, uh, in, in Romans 5, 4, 5.14, we see Jesus is really the second Adam. You know, like Adam, Jesus was tempted by Satan. But Adam disobeyed God's word. But what does Jesus do? Jesus perfectly obeys the Father. And because of that, God has highly exalted him, we see in Philippians. He's highly exalted him to the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so God has given us this mission to share that. 
It's not to hold on to, not to just gather together as a, a body of believers and just like, let's just holy, let's just stay holy and let's stay holy right here. No, God says, I'm sending you out. And, I, and he does this. He does it with the disciples. He sends them out. He does it with his followers. He, he sends you out. How are the people going to know if they don't hear the gospel? How are they going to hear it if we hold on to it? And so this is what we're going to talk about over the next several, several weeks throughout really the, the entirety of the Bible in, in different sections. Um, but I wanted to start here, really, where it all kind of began uh, with the fall and the fall in the garden. And may, let us not be a people who question God's goodness, that we would be people of the word who know it, who believe it, who understand it and can't be tricked by false teaching uh, or anything else. So I want to encourage you with that um, today. So let me pray uh, for us as we, as we go. God, we are <clears throat> we're sinful people. God, forgive me of when I... Um, seek to find goodness somewhere else besides in you. Forgive me for when I've gone through hard times and have questioned if you really care, if you really do love me. And how could I ever say that if I pay attention to the gospel? We know that you love us because you sent your son to die and to take our place, take the punishment that we deserved. So Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our apathy or laziness when it comes to sharing the gospel. God, use us, send us out. Help us to be a people who live sent into the world. So the workplace that you've put us in, may we pay attention to the people around us, the the places we frequent, the places we go, the communities we live in, the neighborhoods, the Facebook groups we're a part of. Maybe we just pay attention and may we help meet needs, help, maybe help have conversations and share the gospel with people around us. So and help us in these areas. Help us to resist temptation. You tell us to pray in that way, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Father, help us. We realize that Satan is very cunning. He's crafty. He's going to get us to question your goodness, to get us to question you ultimately, to not believe in you. And so help us to resist these things and pursue you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.